0: Welcome to Strange History, the podcast where we talk about, you guessed it, Strange History. I'm Brad. And I'm Alyssa. And today we'll be doing a shallow dive into the history of the war that wasn't really a war, but was a war, the Anglo-Spanish War. We're going to talk politics, boats, naval battles, some more boats, Sir Francis Drake, and maybe some more boats. a lot of big bad boats although technically the biggest baddest boats came later but i digress
1: episode 15 elizabeth philip and the big bad boats in 1489 uh, the medina del campo treaty was signed between england and spain They agreed to a balanced trade relationship, and this lasted until about the 16th century. Often throughout England's history, there was always a desire to keep a good relationship with Spain. For example, Henry V uh, was with Princess Catherine of Aragon from Spain. They had a daughter Mary, Mary I. She had actually attempted to join a union with Spain after the death of her half-brother, King Edward VI, in 1553. His advisors originally wanted to find a Protestant heir for their throne, they had me luck. Mary I had been raised Catholic, Catholic, Mary I had been raised Catholic thanks to her mother, and she wanted to make England a Catholic country. She was the very first queen to rule in her own right as well. She went on to marry Emperor Charles V's only son, Prince Philip of Spain in 1554. Now they tried to have a male heir, but they weren't successful. And this marriage was very much aimed to form a political union against France. When they couldn't have any heirs at all, Philip actually left and went back to Spain. You might know Mary I as another name, Bloody Mary. She had executed hundreds of Protestants. She was very much hated by her country, and so was her husband. But in 1558, she became very ill, so the country needed to find a new ruler. Philip was just a consort, so he actually had no claim to the throne. There were only two options, Mary Queen of Scots, who was a former French queen and a devout Catholic, and Elizabeth, Mary I, Protestant half-sister. Philip actually supported Elizabeth um, very reluctantly due to her religion, but he said he didn't want a, quote, French puppet to rule. In 1558, on her deathbed, Mary I actually acknowledged Elizabeth as her successor, and she was officially crowned. The following year. She was depicted as sort of a defender of the Protestant cause. Now, Mary Queen of Scots went on to marry Dauphine Francois in 1558, and this actually allowed the couple to rule both France and Scotland. And the British weren't so fond of this, as you can imagine, but just two years later in 1560, the Treaty of Edinburgh was signed, which declared Scotland a Protestant nation. And this made England feel a lot better. They didn't feel like they were surrounded by those Catholics, God forbid. Now after King Henry II died in 1559, France actually fell into a very weak monarchy. There was a lot of dynastic strife and religious wars that lasted on and off for about 40 years or so. This allowed England to remove the French forces that were hanging out in Scotland and Mary had returned to Scotland around that time as well um, due to a death in the family. But she was not welcomed by the Scottish people, and she didn't have any support from her French people either. Uh, England and Elizabeth especially were happy, and they felt pretty safe with uh, the French not backing Mary, Queen of Scots anymore, and with the French sort of falling into a weaker monarchy. If they had continued on the same course that King Henry II had been on, Scotland might have actually been a French province, which would have caused Elizabeth to form an alliance with Spain by marrying Philip II you know, her brother-in-law. Now, King Philip II was given Spain and the Spanish Netherlands and the New World by his father before his death in 1558. In 1563, there was a trade embargo placed between England and Spain. Now, despite this, England ships were often found in Spanish ports. They would even change their names to get around the embargo. And This sort of didn't last long as both governments realized that the trade was bound to happen between the two nations, despite any embargo. Um, That's gonna be a common theme that we see over and over and over again. King Philip II appointed Margaret Duchess of Parma to be the new governor of the Spanish Netherlands. The Dutch hated this and they began revolting in 1566. Both Protestants and Catholics in the Netherlands had begged Philip to not send the Spanish Inquisition, but being the Spanish Catholic king he was, he sent them.
0: Ding dong, your religion is wrong.
1: (laughs) Pretty much. Extremist Protestants started to burn down churches and destroy them, and anything that reminded them of Rome. Hundreds of people were captured and executed by the Spanish Inquisition. This same rebellion flared up again a couple years later in 1572, but at this time, the Dutch actually had some secret help From England, though it was still again thwarted by Spain. Uh, They rebelled quite a bit in the Spanish Netherlands. In 1568, relations between Spain and England uh, declined even more. England had seized some Spanish boyan ships that had been blown into English waters. These ships had gold on them, and they were supposed to be used to pay for the Duke of Alba's army in the Netherlands. The Spanish then responded by seizing some English merchant ships which had been docked in Antwerp. Both Elizabeth and Philip realized that this really had no value for both nations. Like I said, uh, there was no point in trying to stop any sort of trade or anything. It was bound to happen no matter what they did.
0: There's going to be a lot of uh, anti-Catholicism in this episode, isn't there? And uh,
1: anti-Protestant as well from Spain's side of things.
0: Very interesting. It always amazes me how world religions just play into these massive swaths of human history. It is weird it really is
1: <laughs> when it comes to spain you can really bring uh really blame the original catholic king so Isabella and ferdinand and i mean philip ii is like their great grandchild so obviously he's going to carry on
0: the know, family legacy the family and...
1: legacy of the spanish inquisition
0: right then don your religion is wrong battles are fought on all sides and history is always written by the victor but history is weird it's linear but nonlinear, subjective but objective, and that makes things very difficult to understand from time to time. The episode that we're doing today is a notable example of that, and although our story focuses mostly on that big Anglo-Spanish war of, eight, of 1585 to 1604, we also need to discuss one of the many potential lead-ups to the overall event. There are many times throughout human history where a single event, a single major incident can be traced all the way back to one thing. It's much like the drop of a match into dry wood can spark a wildfire, and sometimes to trade agreement or a disagreement. But context is always important. And although the event would take place almost 200 years afterwards, we need to talk about one of those lead ups. In 1494, the Treaty of Tordesillas was signed by the Spanish and Portuguese. This divided the New World into individual zones, signed and agreed upon by the countries with the existence of Pope Alexander VI. However, many European countries did not view the papal Authority as real and would routinely avoid that treaty. England, in particular, was a major culprit of establishing colonies in the areas owned by Spain or Portugal, and even engaged in trading missions with the Spanish colonies. Nobody really wants a stranger living in their backyard, and Spain was rightfully cautious of these new covers. So much so that the Spanish would even at one point in time massacre French Huguenots living in Fort Caroline, located in French Florida, even after they had surrendered. An Englishman named John Hawkins had already participated in two trade voyages to Spanish colonies in violation of the original treaty. During each visit, he had notably traded slaves for things like gold and hides to varying degrees of success. This is is important due to the fact that slavery was actually outlawed by Spain at this point in history, but despite it being illegal, money does talk. Due to bribes or selling supplies at heavily discounted prices, Hawkins managed to get away with his illegal slave trade. Despite several letters in regard to his character as a successful businessman, the local governments were very alarmed by this clear challenge to their trade monopoly. The only solution, of course, was a seizure of any and all English ships and their supplies in an attempt to regain control of trade flow. The English fleet, if you can call it that, consisted of only six ships. The royal Jesus of Lubbock was a Carrick, It's a three or four-mast, ocean-capable sailing ship. It was actually owned by Queen Elizabeth I of England and leased to John Hawkins. The minion was commanded by John Hampton. The Judith was under the command of Sir Francis Drake, cousin of Hawkins, as well as two other ships, the Angel and the Swallow.
1: I didn't know that they were cousins. Really? Yeah. (laughs) How interesting. Never knew that they were cousins.
0: A captured Portuguese ship would join this little group of privateers off the coast of Ghana and would be named Grace of God. Here in Ghana, Hawkins would purchase water and around 450 slaves in February of 1568 and would set sail again. He would reach Dominica on March 27, 1568, where he sold his cargo to Spanish locals in exchange for gold, silver, fur, and hides. After leaving Dominica, the fleet encountered a storm, which would deal massive amounts of damage to the rudder of Jesus of Lubbock, meaning the group would now need to find Haven before attempting a trip home to England. They set sail for the closest port, in San Juan de Ula. However, Hawkins was fearful that the Spanish might intercept them, so he did the logical thing and overtook three Spanish ships, hoping that he could negotiate for better terms as well as get repairs, and resupplies for his ship. Happy to not be pirated, the Spanish agreed to help when they learned that they would not be plundered or robbed. The fleet moved into port. The same port that already expected a Spanish fleet. The same port that expected a fleet of six ships. The same port that expected a Spanish fleet of six ships on that exact day. Anyway, one of these English ships were boarded by the Spanish. And you can only imagine the fear and confusion thankfully port officials were happy to help the sailors resupply and get them the hell out of their port but not before another fleet could arrive commander don francisco lujan arrived in port the following day carrying with him the new viceroy of new spain a man named don martin enriquez de almanza san juan is a small port and because of that There was no room to port two full fleets, and Hawkins knew this. He sent out a small envoy to the Spanish fleet to inform them that there needed to be conditions for safely detailing how the fleets were supposed to avoid confrontation. The English had repeatedly broken the original treaty discussed earlier, but Hawkins had bet that the Spanish fleet would see reason and agree to terms of peace at the present time. After two days of talks, the Spanish caved. The English could stay in port until repairs were complete, and they were even allowed to bring 11 cannons with them for harbor defense. The Spanish were not allowed to visit the local village with arms. Although these things were agreed upon, the Spanish commander had absolutely no plans to honor this truce. His job was to hunt down these privateers, after all. The Spanish hid a small attack force on a ship called the San Salvador, and started to move it into position between the English and Spanish ships in the docks. Hawkins, however, had already noticed the troops amassing and moving weapons from ships to ship, and sent Robert Barrett, one of his captains, to speak to the Viceroy, demanding a halt to these threatening actions. That would never happen. Instead, the sound of a trumpet blasted the air, and the battle was on. The minion would be the first target. She was boarded by Spanish soldiers almost instantly. Thankfully, the ship was able to defend herself and hauled away to get free of the close confines of the port. The Jesus of Lubbock was the next target, but she too defended herself and repulsed the invaders. Lashing herself free, she attempted to join the minion at sea. At some point in the battle, however, the captain of the Grace of God set fire to his ship, scuttling it before joining Hawkins on the Jesus of Lubbock. Cannon fire from the shoreline batteries slammed into the Lubbock, dealing great damage and breaking the masts, therefore rendering the ship immobile. The Spanish gun batteries continued fire into the smaller ships, sinking the Angel very quickly, and allowing the Swallow to be captured by Spanish forces. Hawkins and a few sailors abandoned the damaged Jesus of Lubbock, hopped onto the Minion, and escaped alongside the Judith. The shocking news, however, continued the following morning when Hawkins had discovered that his cousin, Sir Francis Drake, had taken the ship called the Judith and abandoned them and sailed home, leaving the minion alone and overcrowded. Hawkins would leave 110 men behind to surrender in an attempt to lighten the load on the crossing of the Atlantic. He would return to England with only 15 sailors, and only 70 survived the ordeal overall. Hawkins would also accuse the Spanish of treason and treaty violations, The Battle of San Juan de Ula would mark as one of the first clear precursors to the Anglo-Spanish War that would follow. In
1: 1572, which was the same year as that last Dutch rebellion I mentioned earlier, England actually signed the Treaty of Blois with France. They sort of gave up any idea of hostility between the two nations because they felt like Spain was actually a bigger threat. In 1578, King Philip II appointed the Duke of Parma, Alexander Farnese, as the new commander of the Army of Flanders in the Spanish Netherlands in hopes to prevent any future rebellions. This kind of worked. Um, There really weren't any more uprisings that the Spanish couldn't handle, uh, at least in the Netherlands. In 1585, Queen Elizabeth had sent Sir Francis Drake and hundreds of men to the New World. They actually created this plan in 1577, alongside her advisors, that uh, Francis Drake would venture to the New World, destroy, would venture to the New World and destroy Spanish port cities and a merchant fleet. King Philip abruptly closed Spanish ports to English trade in May of 1585, but as I mentioned earlier, there was really no way to stop trade between these two nations, and it continued despite this. Quote unquote closure. By November of that year, both nations were making plans and repairing ships. They could feel that a war was on the horizon. Drake and his fleet captured the capital Hispaniola, which caused Philip to order plans to invade England that following January in 1586. Really, both nations tried to keep peace as long as possible. King Philip II was dealing with a lot. He was concerned about another revolt. Uh, In the Netherlands, he was worried about defending the Western Mediterranean against the Turks, and he had a lot of responsibility as the commander-in-chief of militant forces of the Counter-Reformation. Another reason was just geography. England England and Spain are not close together at all, um, so you can see how that would be a huge issue, especially back in this time frame. Even his own father, Emperor Charles V, had said, war with all the world, but peace with England. That was something that his father was very adamant about. Elizabeth also didn't want a war either. She deeply cared for her people, and keeping peace with Spain meant trade with Antwerp, which was incredibly important for the English economy. Despite this, though, she did begin to offer direct help to the rebels in the Spanish Netherlands. In August of 1585, she sent thousands of troops and an annual subsidy under the Treaty of Nonsuch. Philip, of course, took this as a declaration of war. He took it that way. It wasn't an actual declaration. There was never an actual declaration of war. One major player that I mentioned earlier is Mary, Queen of Scots. This entire time, she had been trying to help King Philip II in his quest to defeat England. Mary believed that she had the full right to rule England. She wanted to make England a Catholic nation again, just like Mary I had. And Philip, of course, was in full support. Elizabeth was starting to get really tired of the constant attempts to overthrow her and uh, other people attempting to help her one true enemy. Her privy council drew up a bond of association, which made all of the signers pledge that if the queen was killed, not only would they kill the people who killed her, they would kill whoever ordered her to be killed, if that makes sense. So whoever the throne of the country that had her killed, they would kill that person on the throne too as well as all the assassins. It's like a whole thing. Uh, this association was under the direction of Sir Francis Walsingham. Uh, he had actually discovered that Mary had government spies hiding amongst like Elizabeth's, you know, people, uh, in England. He also discovered the Babington plot, which was another, you know, there were countless, another conspiracy, which involved Mary, Queen of Scots and Anthony Babington, uh, them and their plan to kill queen elizabeth so mary was tried and sentenced to death now parliament ordered that sentence be carried out without delay elizabeth was actually incredibly reluctant to sign the death warrant and she waited three months to do so she finally signed it sent it off and when the news was brought to elizabeth on february 8th 1587 that mary had been beheaded she responded with grief and rage she even wrote to Mary's son, James VI of Scotland, that she never actually intended for the execution to take place. She just wanted Mary, Mary, she, just, she just wanted Mary to be imprisoned, essentially. She didn't actually want to kill her. Um, and she actually ended up imprisoning the man who delivered the signed death warrant. And many people in England didn't really believe that Elizabeth was genuinely, genuinely upset. They thought she was just faking it to look good, if that makes sense. She was really good at faking stuff. I don't know if you know this. She she never got married, Elizabeth. And she had so many, like, consorts. And sometimes she'd be like, oh, I'm going to get married to this guy. And then she'd be like, mm, never mind. I'm going to get married to this one instead. And a couple months would go by and she'd be like, mm, never mind. I want someone different. Or, Let me go back to this other guy. Um, Because of this whole interaction and it being, you know, essentially Protestants versus Catholics, Mary Queen of Scots was actually seen as sort of a Catholic martyr.
0: What do you think? Do you think she actually was grieving? Or do you think that it was just all a show? Because I feel like it was all a show.
1: I think I'm a little in between. I think part of it was a show, you know, her being angered when she's the one that signed the death warrant. But I think her grieving was realistic, considering they were sort of family in a way. Like, they both almost, well, maybe not almost, but they were both up for the throne when Mary the First died. So I think, you know, they may have originally had some sort of relationship. They both grew up in terrible ways, honestly. Um, So I think maybe she was a little grief-stricken and maybe regretful that she was beheaded so suddenly that maybe she wanted Mary to like you know sit and think about what she did instead right. of just being immediately murdered
0: you know put her in timeout
1: yeah i think that's what she wanted to do instead but that's not what happened
0: in august of 1585 the in August of 1585, England had joined the Eighty Years' War on the side of the Dutch Protestant United Providences, whom had declared their independence from Spain. This would prompt Sir Francis Drake to sail to the West Indies, where he sacked or plundered Santo Domingo, and turned his ships southbound. After the sacking of Santo Domingo, Drake would capture the city of Carthagine de Indias before turning north and sailing for what is today the United States, where he attacked and captured St. Augustine. Later that year, in October, English troops landed in Galicia and sacked Vigo in Bayona. Drake would continue his shenanigans through the world and would eventually burn 37 ships in the Cages Harbor in 1587, hampering the invasion that King Philip II of Spain had planned on July 29th, King Philip received papal authority to overthrow and dispose Queen Elizabeth given to him by Pope Pius V. Around May 28th of 1588, Philip's Armada set sail for the Netherlands with 130 ships and 26,000 troops and sailors overall. The plan was to pick up additional troops and then invade the English mainland. However, the English managed to surprise the Spanish fleet at the Battle of Gravelines. After several skirmishes with the Spanish Armada, the English had decided that they needed to close within 100 yards for their cannons to penetrate the oak hulls of the Spanish ships. They also learned that the Spanish heavy guns could not be fired and reloaded quickly, giving them an ample amount of time to commit massive amounts of damage before the Spanish could counterattack. Unfortunately, this is where the Spanish had the advantage boarding once the heavy guns were fired gunners would rush to rigging lines and main masts and simply leap onto enemy ships new english tactics meant that they would keep distance and fire salvo after salvo to provoke the spanish who would close in to board as they had done in all previous engagements only to be outmaneuvered by the more agile british ships who would fire at close range around top deck the idea here was Instead of firing into the lower decks, they would kill as many of the seasoned troops and cannoneers on top deck as possible. This would force rank to be pulled from underneath, and these new troops were not as combat tested and often much easier to deal with than the older, more experienced Spanish troops. At 2pm, the English ships began to run out of ammunition in cannons and muskets, leading to some cannoneers loading their guns with things like chains. At 4 p.m., the Spanish fired their last shot. I'm
1: sorry, what can a chain <clears throat> what can a chain in a cannon do? Okay, so that's
0: actually an awesome question. I'm oh, so God. glad you asked. Now, when you load a chain into a cannon, it doesn't fire out like in a ball like you would load it in. Uh, yeah. When it comes out, it expands and it spins. So when it hits, it just cuts through everything. Imagine like taking a circular saw blade and just throwing it at something. It does that. Okay. (laughs) It does massive amounts of damage. And it actually was something that was commonly used all the way up until, like, modern naval engagements.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask if this was, like, a common thing or if they just, like, thought of it on the
0: fly. It was. It is a common thing in later parts of history. (laughs) I don't know if this is the first time we have experienced (laughs) chain rounds being used. Probably not but as chain shot evolved they eventually just slapped two cannonballs onto the opposite side so now you've got big blunt holes and then the tiny skinny cutty hole made by the chain it's 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 fucking devastating (laughs) okay like there's it's horrible
1: i'm glad i asked
0: (laughs) i am too because i was hoping you would (laughs) now five ships in the spanish armada were destroyed during the conflict but So many were damaged during the Battle of Gravelines that the invasion force was severely hampered. The San Lorenzo would suffer a multi-prong attack when it ran aground near Cayley. Lord Howard of Effingham, the main commander of British forces at the time, basically modern-day rank would be like a fleet admiral, would take the ship after a series of infights between the crew, the galley slaves, and attacks from the English French. Ultimately, he decided to allow the French to just simply claim the ship as theirs. Spanish galleons San Mateo and San Felipe would be severely damaged and left to just drift away, eventually running aground and being claimed by the Dutch. The following day, the remaining ships of the Spanish Armada turned around and went towards open water, trying to find their way to the seas of Ireland and Scotland. The British would give chase, even though they were basically out of ammo. This was done on purpose, not to initiate further combat, but to just push the Spanish away, cut them off from any reinforcements, and run them as far away from the mainland as possible. Thirsty, running out of supplies, and unable to hold his own in a fight, Spanish fleet commander Medea Sidonio charted an extremely dangerous trip back home to Spain, and the Armada was in full retreat. In September of 1588, the Armada had finished its trek around Scotland and Ireland and had entered the northern Atlantic. A long voyage had taken a serious toll on the battle-worn ships. Some were only mostly seaworthy, and some were being held together with strapping and rigging, basically just duct tape and band-aids trying to keep a boat afloat. Food was non-existent. And to lose extra weight to speed up the journey, they simply took all of their cavalry horses and threw them overboard.
1: I'm sorry, they just killed a bunch of horses? Oh, no,
0: they didn't kill them. They just pushed them off the ship.
1: Yeah, and I'm assuming they drowned.
0: Horses can swim.
1: Um, not for very long. They're in the ocean, are they not?
0: I mean, yeah, but they're not that far away from mainland. They tried to hug the coast as close as they could. They didn't want to be too far out of sea because they knew half their ships were, you know, had holes in them. They can't go too far out. They
1: just threw horses into the ocean? Yeah. Okay.
0: Pretty much. Great. Now, unable to chart a course home in these new and very unfamiliar waters, as well as having no way to measure longitude, the Spanish were in for another horrible fight. But training and all the cannons and ammunition in the world could not defend against the wrath of a very very angry god and before they could realize what had happened the gulf streams had changed and the weather started to hit them hard westerly winds simply battered the brave soldiers pushing many of the ships off course again the idea of reducing weight to get home faster was important and because of that prior decision all anchors had been thrown overboard weeks ago meaning the ships couldn't even lash themselves down for safety. Some made it to land. Others simply disappeared, never to be seen again. Those who did make landfall would be cut down by British troops. They were just simply waiting for them, and it was a slaughter. Others would die of hunger, thirst, or exposure. Following those storms, an additional 5,000 lives were claimed, not counting for the almost 15,000 thousand that were lost to combat when the spanish finally arrived back home the armada had been cut down to only 67 ships and less than 10,000 men those who did manage to come home would die of sickness or injuries when philip learned of the failure he quoted i sent the armada against men not god's winds and waves by comparison the british would suffer very few losses Only 50 to 100 men lost in combat, another 400 wounded, and no ships lost. However, diseases like typhus and hunger would claim the lives of many, as sailors of the Kingdom of England would be discharged without pay for months on end. Fearing another attack, the Navy stayed on active duty for the following months, even as its sailors simply withered away and died around them. In 1589, Elizabeth would approve the counter-armada, The British answer to the Spanish attack, and it would be led by Sir Francis Drake. It would ultimately be unsuccessful and allowed Philip to retain naval superiority through the rest of the war. Interestingly enough, the Battle of Gravelines would change the face of naval combat. Previously, naval combat mostly consisted of just hitting each other and boarding them for close combat, but now British naval combat would rely on the overwhelming use of heavy naval guns. Although the Spanish still had more ships, the English ships were better armed and armored, meaning that numbers no longer mattered. Philip would go on to raise two more Grand Armadas to deal with the English. However, they would be destroyed or scattered by storms each time before they could be deployed.
1: In 1591, a squadron of Spanish ships sailed to the Azores, where some British ships were anchored and drove them out. They captured one of the first-class royal galleons. Elizabeth commanded her navy to attack the New World to intercept Spanish treasure fleets, um, but it didn't actually go that well, because during this ambush, the Spanish actually captured the English flagship the revenge. Uh, As Brad mentioned earlier, all of the attacks in 1585 um, and so on, I don't know if you know this, but the Spanish were somehow always warned of those attacks. Despite how bad it went for them, they always knew it was going to happen. They just still weren't prepared as they should have been. That's...
0: Interestingly (laughs) weird.
1: Yeah, they were always warned.
0: Does Um, anyone know by who? No.
1: Not that I can find.
0: I can just imagine, like, I don't know, maybe Queen Elizabeth with a little fake mustache and a three-piece suit.
1: Listen, she was a a little bit of a fake, so, like, I feel it. In June 1596, a large Anglo-Dutch naval force prepared for battle. Their plan was to attack the Spanish ships before they actually entered the harbors Uh, Sir Walter Rayleigh managed to defeat, burn, and capture over 40 Spanish ships. Cadiz then fell to the Allies, which allowed them to hold the port for about six weeks or so before returning to the Isles. Throughout the 1590s, the Spanish used huge convoy escorts, which allowed the Spanish to ship three times as much silver as they could before. So they were a little bit more prepared as time went on. Both Sir Francis Drake and John Hawkins died of disease during a disastrous expedition into the New World, uh, Puerto Rico, Panama, and some other Spanish territories in that sort of 1595 to 1596 uh, year or so. This is actually a huge setback for the English since they depended so greatly on these two. And because of this, actually lost a lot of soldiers and ships as well. King Philip eventually died in... In September of 1598 and then Queen Elizabeth died in March of 1603 there was a peace treaty that was signed in August of 1604 between the two nations and uh, the only thing I could find about who won this quote-unquote war was the English which feels pretty obvious um, but it wasn't a war so can you even really declare a winner that's my question Uh, There were a bunch of treaties signed thereafter. The Treaty of Madrid was signed in 1667. Uh, This allowed for more peace. Uh, More peace talks between the two. Three years later, in 1670, another treaty was signed between Spain and England, and this made it so that Spain recognized English colonies, provinces, and territories as sovereign. As you can tell from all the information that you were just given this was really a huge victory for the royal navy and a devastating loss for the spanish armada a lot of these battles were close range and gruesome Uh, there was a lot of damage done to both sides as brad mentioned earlier due to weather and sea conditions each side did the best with what they had um, though both sides obviously lost lives and ships there were political and religious tones the whole time and catholics and protestants had a long hatred for each other, and I don't know if they still do, but... Well...
0: (laughs) I don't know, I'm not Protestant or Catholic. Yeah. But according according to the Scottish kid in my geography class, yes.
1: Okay, that's fair. It just kind of goes to show that despite the desire for neutrality, one action can cause total warfare, like Mary Queen of Scots being beheaded.
0: January 21st, which is a remarkably awesome day in world history. Do you know what?
1: I don't.
0: (laughs) Okay, so today is the day when King Louis the 11th, no, King Louis the 16th Mm -hmm. of France was executed by a guillotine during the French Revolution. Personally, one of my least favorite revolutions, but still super interesting. You have a list of favorite revolutions? I do have a list of favorite revolutions. Okay. I also have a list of how many times, or is there a guillotine here, have been asked to me on tour. Once. Early in the morning of January 21st, 1793, King Louis XVI was woken up in his cell and dressed by one of his attendants. He was escorted to a local church where he was allowed to listen to his last mass, make a final confessional, and receive his last communion. He decided not to make a scene of seeing his family during the church service, which I find super interesting. Dude's about to die, and he's like, no, thank you. I don't want to see any of you. Well, I mean, I, I don't know if I would either. I, I don't know. Now, at 9 a.m., he climbed into a carriage outside the church and made his way down the long streets of Paris. He was escorted by a band playing drums to drown out any sounds of support for the former disgraced king and a cavalry group marched alongside them with sabers drawn. In the streets, 80,000 troops, which, if you're curious, is about the seating capacity of the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, stood ready to just kill anyone who tried to save the king. At 10 a.m., the procession arrived at the uh, Palais de la Révolution, greeted by guns and scaffolding, and a crowd armed to the teeth with pikes and swords. Louis at first denied being bound by rope, but relented when one of his guards offered to use a silk handkerchief instead of the heavy ropes. He was escorted onto the scaffolding by the executioner and his men after they had cut off his hair and removed the color of his shirt. He protested his innocence and attempted to make a speech, but the band playing drums just started to beat louder. That and the sound of the crowd screaming completely drowned out anything he had to say, and even eyewitnesses there didn't have any clue as to what he was trying to attempt to say. Louis would be beheaded right there on stage in view of thousands of people, although some eyewitnesses do report that it actually wasn't a clean decapitation, and the blade actually struck him in the back of the skull and exited through his lower jaw. Some people rushed up to that execution platform to dip their own handkerchiefs in his blood to keep his souvenirs, which, that's just macabre.
1: Well, I mean, like the guillotine was like a big deal back then. Oh yeah. So it feels like a vibe, you know, like you meet someone who's, you know, hasn't attended their first beheading yet. And they're like, oh, you know what I have? A handkerchief soaked in King Louis the blood. They'd be like, oh cool, a vibe. Okay. Or they'd be grossed out. But I'm just saying. There were definitely it was definitely like
0: Yeah, there's no really in-between there. Fan behavior. Now Charles Henry, with an eye, Sanson, the executioner, would get more than the head of the king, however. In addition to his hair, his shirt, and his head, he also stole what remained of Louis' emotional stability. Before tying off his hands with that handkerchief, Sanson called the king sire, a word that he hadn't heard in months after his disgrace. According to Sanson's personal account, the mention of the word caused a very clear wince of pain that shot across the face of the former king. The Sanson family would take one more thing from the king, however. Henry Sanson, the eldest son of Charles Henry Sanson, very creative family, would take the life of Marie Antoinette in April, just months afterwards, executing her in the same place, in the same fashion... As King Louis the Sixteenth.
1: Here's a fun fact for you that Brad didn't know that my freshman year history teacher told me um, in my entire class. "Viva La Vida" by Coldplay is in fact about King Louis the Sixteenth and the French Revolution. If the album cover wasn't enough to give it away, if you truly listen and like look up the lyrics, it's it's about King Louis. Incredible! I think that's super funny that they were like, you know who we should make a song about? King Louis the Sixteenth.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Strange History. Join us again next time for whatever topic we eventually decide on. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The username is strange history for all the latest updates.
1: Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, or wherever your ears are listening. And of tors, course,
0: always, always enjoy, enjoy the strange, weird, weird things,
1: things that, that make, make us, us. us.